Hello and welcome to Bright Blue Dot. My name is Thomas Jelly and today I'm delighted to be joined by Gwen Linné, a friend of Bright Blue Dot. Gwen, hello, welcome and thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Gwen. I wonder if you could tell us about the different chapters of your working life so far and the moments in which you have felt you were contributing the most to sustainability. Thank you, Thomas. If there's a, a traditional way to enter the field of sustainability, Thomas, I don't think that I followed it. But the simplest way of describing my trajectory is that my focus has been on human resilience. I come from a conflict resolution background and I spent the first 10 years of my professional life as an officer in the French Navy. And my military career was dominated by the threat of international terrorism, maritime piracy in the Gulf of Aden, the NATO interventions in Afghanistan, and the early days of the so-called Arab Spring, especially the NATO intervention in, uh, in Libya. Now, what was clear to me was that the international order was shifting and being challenged. And as is always the case, the prize for the lack of decisive action was borne by the people on the ground. I suppose it was that realization that led me to focus on improving the resilience of communities in the face of conflict. And since I've left the uh, armed forces in 2015, I've run a number of projects aimed at improving the capacity of civil society actors to organize and sustain themselves in contexts where the basic services the state would be expected to deliver were failing. And this, Thomas, was a very different vantage point to that of a military headquarters or the ops room of a warship. These projects took me to refugee camps on the Syrian border, talking to people who saw their houses shelled by the regime about what it means to move on. It took me to radicalization hotspots in Indonesia, where I heard how people rationalize choosing violent action to bring about change, or how Iranian irregular migrants rationalize risking their lives crossing the English Channel on unsafe small boats to reach the United Kingdom. Could you tell us a bit about different ways of thinking about shocks or tools that you have found most useful in trying to reorientate yourself in the aftermath of shock, tools that have helped you to help others in the aftermath of shocks and make sense of their implications, even when they're not clear? That's a great question, Thomas. Well, going back to first principles, what this question really is about is resilience, what it means and what it does. The kind of shocks you're talking about are systemic shocks, situations where the systems you rely upon are disrupted to the extent that they cannot perform their normal functions, either temporarily or permanently. Take communications networks, health services, ability to trade, and so on. Now, in a resilient system, in, in theory, a resilient system is one that can absorb these kind of shocks, even if it means losing capacity, but continue to exist and deliver essential functions. And the internet is a great example. You can destroy more than half the internet servers, but the network will still exist and perform its functions. But that, that's just defining resilience. It doesn't explain how to get there. And that's why the entire idea of the military is predicated upon preparedness. You have 
the right resources, plan Bs, plan Cs, the right procedures, rehearse till exhaustion, and importantly, the right mindset, because you know that all of the above will probably change in the first five minutes. And, and that's all great, but one day such a systemic shock occurs, and what do you do? I think the first thing is to recognize what the shock is doing. It's reconfiguring everything. It's revealing the parts of the system that are essential and those that are not. The first thing you need to achieve is, is survive this initial reconfiguration. And unfortunately, in many cases, it's predominantly down to luck. Was the building you live in struck by a bomb? Or were you in an industry rendered obsolete overnight by a pandemic? But if you do survive, the first step is a radical shift in mindset. Because we are used to project ourselves in the future to plan and strategize. But in the case of the kind of shocks you're talking about, those mental steps are usually not available because you're stuck in a continuous present. So first, you must draw an inventory of what you do control. Can I move about? Can I communicate? Can I access information on my situation? Then you must switch to containment. And here, what you're trying to contain is the flow of immediate requirements. You want to contain these requirements because you need to create bandwidth and time for the non-immediate. What must we do in a day, in a week, in a month? Like I said, the problem with shocks is they fix you in the present. But once you've managed to escape the trap of immediacy, you need some form of a plan. And I'm not talking of strategies in, in the traditional sense, how we, we use them in normal times here. I think the neoclassical notion of utility function that is quite useful what course of action will I favor? Should I pursue a course of action that will allow me to move, act, and communicate, or one that will maximize security? Those sort of choices. And the reason for this mindset is that in the aftermath of a shock, everything changes everywhere and all the time. But by adopting this posture, and if you're lucky, you start increasing your bandwidth for thinking and being able to act in more strategic terms. And that's when you're able to take part in what I call the renormalization phase. You're able to shape to a degree the new equilibrium that comes to replace the old one. Gwen, thank you for that very clear and helpful explanation of what an appropriate model looks like. Could you give us an example from your experience? Well, you have put this model to use in real life? Yes. Um, one situation that illustrates this quite well, I believe, was the emergence of mutual aid groups during the first lockdown in the UK. Shifting to a state of near complete isolation is not something that ordinary residents spend too much time preparing for. So I, I guess it does qualify as a shock. What was very interesting was the way these groups emerged. I don't know where it started, but an initial group got together to help local residents support one another with things like providing food and medication for the most vulnerable or driving health workers to their hospitals. Then this initial group decided within a few days to package the lessons learned on how to organize such mutual aid groups 
in effect, what they created was a generic template that was just a collection of a few documents in a Google Drive folder. Then this Google Drive folder was shared with other areas. The instructions were, were very simple. Canvas your electoral ward, which is a, a small neighborhood unit here in the UK. Add your group's contact details. Inventory who needs help and who can help. Then communications infrastructures. And when I got involved with my local group, my focus was on setting up processes and capabilities for managing all these financial transactions between people who needed food, medication, or other levels of support, but would not leave their houses, and volunteers who were happy to help but needed a way to be given money to make these purchases. So that was a good example of the sequence I mentioned before. First, recognize what the shock is doing, what is essential and what's not. Reconfigure. Decide what utility function to favor and then create space to move away from the immediate so that you can plan into the future. Thank you for that wonderful example. Now, you and I are speaking on the 11th of March, and it's been just over two weeks since the geopolitical environment has been thrust into renewed turmoil with humanitarian energy and food security concerns top of mind. Thinking about what you're hearing, reading in the media and beyond, do you see any patterns in discussion, in analysis? Could you comment on them or evaluate them? Well, I believe the one pattern we see and, and have seen for a while is a return to great power composition in buffer zone against the backdrop of a receding international system. And this is a trend that had multiple starting points. Some are linked to the United States unilateral decision to invade Iraq in 2003, damaging the UN's credibility in the process. The Arab winter, where Syria in particular, became the theater of a war by proxy between different great powers, and China's very own scramble for Africa. Crises and shocks like those we are living right now or phase transition moments periods where we shift from one equilibrium to another. The previous equilibrium, which I would call the post-Cold War period, had a focus on building international institutions and compliance with international. I don't know what the next equilibrium will look like, but for those who believe in the necessity of international cooperation in order to solve the challenges of this century, I think we're going to have to innovate very quickly and establish what leverage and what influence we can have. It's a brave new world. Thank you, Gwen. This brave new world hasn't emerged yet. At the moment, we see that shocks can amplify polarization or indeed accelerate the fulfillment of pre-existing movements. I'm thinking in particular about the green energy transition. There are those who see polarization between those in favor and those against at the moment. There are others who see the current geopolitical turmoil as something that will accelerate the green transition. In your mind, what are the key factors that determine which prevails? Increased polarization or the acceleration of pre-existing movements? You're, you're absolutely right, Thomas. Whenever a situation arises where you can draw boundaries between an in-group and an out-group, you will have polarization. And these mental frameworks are extremely sticky. 
I read the other day about young Russians living in Ukraine who called their parents back in Russia to explain the, the situation. Only to hear their parents tell them, no, this is not what's happening. There is, there is no invasion. And a polarized view of the world is the path of least resistance. It makes the world look simple and easy to decipher. And I'm, I'm not a historian, but I feel there are only two things that can help overcome this. Generational change is one. And when people are offered alternatives that are more interesting than wanting your neighbor dead. Economic development fulfills this premise. It makes people want to send their children to school to build things and to create linkages with others. And in terms of generational change, I'm hopeful when I look at the new generation, uh, because the one thing they are not is complacent. It, my bet is that this new generation is the best chance in terms of accelerating the push to more sustainable ways of living on this planet. Gwen, thank you very much. I'm Thomas Jelly, and you've been listening to Gwen Linnin, friend of Bright Blue Dot. Thank you, Gwen. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you.